These guys kicked ass for us. You guys look great because you brought them out. When a band releases an album, the easiest and most common way to measure success is number of records sold. However, sometimes an album is successful because it accomplishes something behind the scenes. It makes some sort of connection for an artist or it puts their music in the right place at the right time. And that's exactly how you could describe the White Stripes self-titled debut on Sympathy for the Record Industry. It didn't light up the charts, it wasn't going to buy them a mansion, but it would provide the scaffolding for Jack and Meg White to build something bigger than either of them ever could have imagined. I'm Sean Cannon from Third Man Records and Nevermind Media. This is Striped, the story of the White Stripes. We left off last time, uh, about a month before the White Stripes debut album came out. And as strange as it might seem, we're going to fast forward a few months past the album's release into late summer, early fall of 99. And in case you're wondering why we're skipping all the record release hoopla, well, there wasn't much in the way of hoopla. While people were excited locally, and it was monumental for the band to say, we have this album out, the release itself was pretty inauspicious. It was kind of just another record on a label that put out a lot of records. To be clear, though, we're not skipping over the album itself because having it out there in the wild is what led to some events that would change everything for the band. Which began with, uh, as Blackwell says here, three shows in September 99, opening for Pavement. Now, for reference, uh, in terms of 90s indie rock, Slacker Quintet Pavement was the gold standard in the minds of many. So for Pavement to take out a band that had only played five shows outside their hometown and had never actually toured was a big deal. (laughs) And also a head-scratcher for people on the outside looking in. Sure enough, it didn't happen by design. It was all accidental. From what what I've been able to gather, um, Pavement's tour manager at the time is a woman named Deb Pastor. And probably later than it should have been was, was needing to find an opening band for these three shows. So Towson, Maryland, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, and Athens, Georgia. Generally speaking, the job of a tour manager is to make sure the trains run on time. You know, get the band to the venue, take care of the crew, keep track of the schedules, and uh, you know, deal with concert promoters while you're out on the road night after night. But because Deb was an old pro and the band trusted her, Pavement percussionist, and as I've heard him described before, indie rock hype man, uh, Bob Nastanovich, asked Deb uh, to do something tour managers don't usually do. Book an opening band for the tour. And what made it even more of a challenge is that Deb had to do it with just a few weeks before the tour kicked off. We had opening bands lined up, but the first three dates, nobody could fill those dates. Everyone could join later. And I asked Bob to give me a list of names of bands I could try and call. He faxed me a list of about 25 bands. A third of them no longer existed. A third were already on tour and the rest couldn't accommodate us on such short notice. So I called my friend Jason Corkunas, who plays with a lot of bands. We have a similar taste. Now she asked Jason to give her a list of five records he was into at the moment. And the White Stripes' first album was one of them. I put that one on and I could not take it off. 
it was like having a live band in the room while I was doing all my computer work. And I just left it on. So Deb decided this is the band she wants for those dates, which to this day, the fact that she had the record at all, much less that she chose the White Stripes, is still mind-boggling for Blackwell. It's got to be August of 99. So that first album is three months old, not even three months old. And it's not, there's no publicist working it. There's no radio promoters. The band doesn't even have a manager. I mean, it barely has a record label. The record label is good at getting the record out, but even getting it into stores and getting people interested is really, really difficult in, in 1999. I couldn't find any info on the CD, so I called Jason back and asked him to get me in contact with them. He gave me a number for Jack, but he didn't say who it was. So I assumed that uh, it was their manager. The band doesn't even have a booking agent. Like she has to do the deal with Jack. And I left a message, introduced myself. I think I asked if they toured and I said we had some dates. And Jack phoned me back in a timely manner, not right away and not like too long. And at this point, Deb starts explaining the whole situation, you know, about how she knew it was really short notice. That was a really long drive to the southeast where the shows were, and, you know, how they couldn't pay much and all that. And according to Deb, Jack just kind of stopped in his tracks. And instead of asking for more details, he basically asks if it was for real or if it was a practical joke. Then and I said, yeah, this is real. And then I asked him how many people were in the band, thinking there were more than two. And when he told me that, I definitely paused because I wondered if the record was some powerful studio creation. And then, oh no, what if they didn't bring the power? So I awkwardly asked him if, um, if they sounded like the record live. And I made it sound like it was a typical question, even though I, I hated myself for asking it. And he most confidently said yes. And he said they absolutely could do the three dates. And I really like that. So I decided to take the risk. In a matter of minutes, the White Stripes booked their first tour opening for Indie Rock Royalty which was just a couple weeks away. It was really quick. It was too quick. I mean, it was like, I, I, it was rude. It was rude to ask anybody to do it, really. At that point in time, it's like, really? You couldn't give us, a, you know, because a lot of people I called wanted to do it. And they're like, what? Yeah, I felt like a dumbass asking people, hey, you think you could do this in two weeks, you know, motivate your whole band and change all your work schedules, whatever you got going on. So when he said, yes, we could do it and seemed enthusiastic about it and then didn't, get weird when I ask the weary question. I was like, yeah, we got it. This, this sounds like a go to me. <laughs> it was a no-brainer for Blackwell, too, who by now had turned 17 and would sneakily take a few days off school for the trip. So the band got everything ready and even found some new transportation uh, since Jack's rusted-out yellow van just wouldn't suffice for the trip. So no one has a reliable vehicle, so uh, Jack has to rent a minivan for us to do these gigs. And I remember being, uh, we're kind of like downriver Detroit, uh, southbound on 75, downriver. So like 20 minutes outside of, you know, home base. And uh, we're just jetting along. He's like, oh shit. Like, what? He's like, I'm going 90. 
<laughs> and the the reasoning being was that he hadn't driven a nice car <laughs> maybe ever. So like, you know, most cars that that he had the privilege of driving, you know, once you hit 60, there's a solid rumble. And so on a brand new minivan from Hertz or wherever, um, there's no rumble. It's just hitting 90 with no problems. That's right. It's officially tour time. Down in Towson, Maryland, the day of the show, Deb was standing in the parking lot behind the venue waiting for the band and the ramshackle road crew which was just Blackwell and a friend of the band, Greg Simez, who would serve as Jack's guitar tech. And she remembers being pretty excited and pretty nervous. Because I wanted to uh, meet them in person and get a sense of their character and their personalities. Uh, like, it, 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 yeah, I was waiting for them to arrive, dying to meet them. I mean, she put her neck out on the line for these kids after all. Remember, Payment didn't know the band other than hearing the record from Deb, so if things went sideways, well, you know. Alongside Deb in the parking lot was Bob Nastanovich, who you'll remember tasked her with finding the band. He was also nervous, but for slightly different reasons. He'd recently learned that the White Stripes were on their first real tour, having never played a show outside the Midwest. And so now I'm kind of like worried about them, because I'm like, you know, worried about like kind of nurturing these kids, making sure that they're comfortable, making sure they feel very welcome on the tour. They kind of needed to be like uh, quickly embraced and made to feel welcome. You know that feeling when you're just like, okay, what are we doing? We got in a van in Detroit earlier today and now we're have driven quite a distance to Towson where pavement had never been. The rented minivan pulls up around 5, 5.30. Jack, Meg, Blackwell, and Greg all roll out, and Deb was instantly struck by their demeanor. They were intelligent, they were sweet, they were keen observers, they were quiet, and they had an obvious work ethic, which I love. And I had a sense that they brought the goods. And they didn't need to brag and they didn't need to say anything, and they were going to look, listen, and figure out where they were and how they fit into this. She might have been thoroughly impressed by the gang, but as an experienced tour manager, Deb still knew they'd need a little help, especially since it seemed like they weren't going to speak up much or make any demands. I could tell they weren't going to ask me for anything. And so I tried to make sure that they had what they needed and, you know, what, who's here, what do you got, you know, what are you driving, where are you parking, you know, that kind of thing, and make sure everything was, was cool for them. That's just what the pavement crew did. Uh, Deb got everything in order, and Bob sort of took everybody under his wing because he could tell Jack and Meg were a little nervous on their first tour. And according to Blackwell, those nerves bled over into the White Stripes set that night in Towson. They play hyperspeed. They, they're, um, I, I didn't notice it at the time, but afterwards, it seemed like they kind of, Jack and Meg, both um, admitted to being somewhat nervous. So they were supposed to play, I think, a 30-minute set, and they, they clocked out at like 22. To, to kind of give some more context, it was, it was, you know, that first real gig in front of entire strangers. Like, no one in that room would have known who they were. I'm, I'm positive. The nerves during the show didn't seem obvious to Pavement either, who were all keenly interested to see exactly what the White Stripes were about. 
Outside of Bob, uh, the rest of Payment didn't remember a ton from this tour, but they very much remembered their initial impressions of Jack and Meg on stage. The first thing that came into mind was like, oh my God, he's like Robert Plant. <laughs> That's Payment guitarist Scott Camberg, a.k.a. Spiral Stairs. But it was like so cool and like, they were, I don't know if it was because they were shy or they were young or, or what, but when they got on stage, they were super, you know, amazing, like rocking and way different than like, you know, the typical indie rock stuff that had been going on in our circles. When the White Stripes started playing that first night, bassist Mark Eibold was hurrying to get into the venue, but could still hear Jack singing from outside. What I really remember uh, is my initial surprise at hearing uh, Jack's voice and then going in and then seeing the people, uh, the person attached to the voice was this, you know, uh, guy that was probably like around 20 years old. It, it was almost like hearing like Robert Plant singing um, like Black Dog or something. <laughs> uh, and I was like, oh my God, this is the opening band. Not that we ever felt com competitive with opening bands. I mean, I was psyched, super psyched. Drummer Steve West also recalls being amped to see the band live after hearing the record from Deb. And they pretty much blew me and Pavement away. <laughs> you know, I kind of knew that they were going to fly right over the Pavement's heads. It's kind of how we would always say. And they did. And Bob, as the kind of percussionist that's a little non-traditional in an indie rock band, had a very distinct memory of how Meg's work on the drums really set the duo apart. The one thing I loved about Meg is, um, although you know she's always been a better drummer than who you're speaking with, um, she was perfectly complementary to the music being played around her. Like it wasn't really incredibly complicated from a, a structural standpoint in terms of rock and roll. And her job and her presentation of like playing rock and roll drums was minimal, which really helped. Oh, and hey, uh, remember how Deb was pretty nervous uh, about how things were going to go and the way payment would react? Well, after seeing that first set, she didn't think about it much because she was too busy enjoying herself. I was so, so blown away and so happy and so high. First off, because I was seeing a band whose record I loved play. So I became a super fan at that moment in time and didn't really think about any of what anyone else thought <laughs> or, what, <laughs> or any of it. And the best part was going in to settle and having the uh, club owners and the people who booked them just like, who the hell are they? Where are they from? Where'd they come from? Did you bring them? Were they on your whole tour? It was, that was my, I think probably the most rewarding moment of time was to see an actual club owner say, oh my God, we'll have them back. Well, we want to have them back. And then it happened the next night in Raleigh. Raleigh might've inspired the same reaction from the White Stripes tour mates and the concert promoter. But Bob noted that not everybody was so thoroughly impressed. The second show we played with them was in Raleigh at a place called The Ritz, which was a very unnatural atmosphere for anybody to play a gig. And it was a real shitty, unplayable venue, like in suburban Raleigh. And um, we were uncomfortable because like, it was one of those places where there's no way that anybody was going to sound really good. And there was a bunch of like pro rock stage sound people. You know, the kind of guys, your stereotypical rock dude. 
They, they probably toured with Def Leppard or Motley Crue for a month in the 80s, and they've got this super slick and polished idea of how a rock show should go. The guy comes up to me and he's like, he says to me, like, why the hell did you get this band to play with you? And I said, well, we love their record. And he said, well, they're so unprofessional. Like, the singer doesn't even, like, really sing into his mic. He doesn't even sing into his mic. And, like, you know, how are we supposed to get him to sound right? And, like, it's just like, you know, this is like some really amateurish shit that they're doing. And I looked at him and I said, look, I said, buddy, blow my arm around him. I don't know why I did that. Maybe sort of to bring him in to help him to listen to me and stuff. But I said to him, I said, you watch this band real closely because this band's going to soar right over the top of us. And he looked at me like I was crazy. I said, you watch. Okay, you watch. Right. And I just kind of let that walk off because I don't want to talk to this jackass anymore. That jackass notwithstanding, the Raleigh show really was one for the books. Now, based on what Blackwell had to say, it seemed like the band channeled everything that came out of the Paycheck show back in March and really kicked things up a notch. Meg was in command, and, and Jack was ranging, throwing out new songs on a whim, and just going off. And if you need proof, that Raleigh show at the Ritz is on the White Stripes 20 vault package, which you can get at thirdmanrecords.com. Um, then we went to Athens, in contrast to the Ritz, is like a 40-watt club in Athens has long been like one of the best rock venues in America. It's run by Valena Vago and, and Barry Buck. Just a cool college town, cool vibe there. Um, I, I sold merch for the White Stripes and selling merch for Pavement that night was a friend of theirs um, named Lance Bangs. If that name sounds familiar, it's because Lance Bangs is a noted filmmaker and one of those guys who kind of shows up in, in a lot of stories. And during this pavement tour, he was shooting footage for what would become the documentary Slow Century, and he vividly remembers encountering the White Stripes on this run and being uh, a little apprehensive, maybe, before actually seeing them. Some of the previous opening acts that Pavement had chosen for the, the tours for Terra Twilight in 1999 had been uh, people that were making music that was uh, interesting or challenging, but in for like a basic audience, maybe in real-time entertainment value, like kind of a struggle. Things like U.S. Maple, who were deconstructing what the bass guitar <laughs> drums version of a rock band would be or what the sounds would be that you would uh, normally consider like a song or a performance. And then uh, the Lonesome Organist, sort of doing like one-man performance pieces and so when they had this band that was going to do these three shows on the East Coast, you know, I was concerned that it was just going to be something where it was like, for lack of a better phrase, like a gimmick or a shtick, where like, oh, it's, they just wear white and red and, and they're brother and sister. Lance's apprehension didn't last, though. Yeah, I have to say, like, it was pretty clear that this was a band that, like, was more creatively ambitious and had a stronger sense of showmanship and command than a lot of other performers did working in that circuit. And that they had the potential to kind of like make a stronger impact on the larger rock world. So the last night on tour goes well. The White Stripes kill it again. And there was a party after the show. There was a party at the Barry Buck mansion. So Barry Buck was the ex-wife 
of Peter Buck from REM. And I think she owned the 40 watt or had something to do with it. During this party at Barry Buck's mansion after their third and final show together, Deb decides to gather the pavement guys up to see if there was something special they could do for the White Stripes. Because Jack, Meg, and the crew were obviously putting themselves out uh, while simultaneously doing a bang-up job every night. Well, one of the first things you notice is that Ben skips high school to come do this damn tour. And uh, so then I realized, like, oh, they're happy to be here. That kind of gave me a good idea of that. And then I see them in that van, and then I think they slept in that van a couple times. I'm not sure. And I, I put together, you know, how much the gas would have cost and how long it took them to get there, how long it take them to get home. And then that with the money that we were paying them, and I knew they were going into the hole. And so we were at Barry, Barry's house afterwards, after that last Athens show. And I got the guys together and said, hey, these guys kick ass for us. You guys look great because you brought them out. Um, they're losing money. Can I give them some money? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And how much money? And I'm like, I don't know, 400 bucks. Yeah, yeah, everyone's all okay with it. So I gave them 400 bucks. Which is, that's, that's how you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to take care of the opening band. Um, if you've ever been there, you know how hard it can be to, to scrap that together. And uh, and drove back to Detroit, and I was in I was in school, uh, whatever on Tuesday. All in all, it was a pretty good time for the band. They were excited to have the opportunity and to see the pavement was gracious. But at that very moment, it didn't seem like a, a huge deal, in the sense that, in spite of this run, they still didn't have a manager or a booking agent, or or any promise of, of future tours because of it. That said, Deb knew it would likely bear fruit pretty quickly. We might have given them a little bit of a gift because those club owners love them. And when a club owner loves you, when you're booking your tour, there's not a lot of arguing to get the date and that that might be helpful to them. And eventually Jack and Meg saw the role those shows played in their career too. Years later, Deb ended up hanging out with Meg. And Meg brought it up that night. She wanted me to know that. and. And I, whenever Meg says something, you don't even ask her, oh, really? You don't even do that because she just said it. Oh, really? She said it, you know? That, be <laughs> that means something, you know, when she speaks up. And she's very direct about saying that to me. And I just, I'm just so, I just, yeah, I don't know. It's really nice to hear from her, especially because, uh, I really like that girl, and I really respect her privacy, and I respect how she does things. She does things the way she wants to do them, and the fact that she even remembers any of that and feels that way about it, I just feel really touched. I feel really touched. I feel really lucky. And I just think it's really nice that she takes the time or took the time to tell me that. Back to 1999, though. 
in the immediate aftermath of those pavement shows, they got some buzz back in Detroit, but again, not much else. It would end up being a different trip out of town, one that almost didn't happen at all, that signaled, hey, maybe there's something special going on. The moment that it seemed like there was something beyond what Jack and Meg grasped in Detroit was they had played a show um, in November that year, November of 99. There's a band in Milwaukee called the Mistreaters who they were having a, planning a show for the release of their first seven inch single. We had our first record coming out. That's Chris Shulist, AKA Chris Treater, the front man of the Mistreaters. And we had just heard the White Stripes single, the, the big three killed my baby uh, on sympathy. And they had a new record coming out, which was their self-titled record. And honestly, we just, our whole point was to play with like-minded bands or bands that kind of had our sound bands that we wanted to see. And we we're like, Hey, let's see if they want to play with us. I think Jack's number and address was either in a promo thing or, or it was on the back of the record. I'm not, I'm not even sure, but we just called him up, you know, would you like to open up for us? You know, we'll have the show, whatever. And Jack's like, okay. I, I mean, we've never played Milwaukee before. I don't really, I don't really know what, what's the point of us playing. And Miss Treater's like, well, we're just, we're really, really big fans. And there's a record store here in town that has like really, really pushed you guys just from, from not knowing them at all, just getting the record in, listening to it and, and people kind of becoming known. So Jack had agreed to do the show and was ready to, had second thoughts and was ready to cancel. Like, we're going to drive all the way to Milwaukee, which is six hours. We drive all the way to Milwaukee and no one knows who we are there. No one's going to care. Now, for people not familiar with the Midwest, I think it's important to point out that this drive isn't just a long one. To get from Detroit to Milwaukee, you either have to drive across Michigan and through Chicago, a city known for historically bad traffic. Or you have to drive across the state of Michigan and take a ferry across Lake Michigan. So either way, it's a serious pain. But before he could call the band and cancel, they had sent him a package that had flyers for the show. No one had ever even done a White Stripes silkscreen poster in Detroit. The fact that the first one was, was in Milwaukee was kind of hilarious. The flyer in question was a doozy, too. The artist Eric Von Munz got a bunch of old records from thrift stores and printed the info right on the grooves of the vinyl. It looks so awesome. After Chris Shulis saw the finished product, he agreed. And I was like, just send it to them. Because it's cool enough, you should send them a copy. Send them one. And I'm not sure where I heard this from, but someone was like, I, I mean, maybe they even said, said that, but... They were thinking of canceling the show. They got the flyer in the mail and they were like, oh, wow, well, this is pretty cool. I guess we have to now. <laughs> so the White Stripes made the drive to Milwaukee to open for the Mistreaters at the Cactus Club on November 13th, 1999. And it was bonkers. The White Stripes went on before the Mistreaters um, and it was packed. It was full. And people were singing along, like people knew the songs and they'd never heard them live. They'd only ever heard them from the records. It was really, really shocking for uh, for Jack and Meg and, and myself as well, me at the merch table selling things, like 
think it was like we almost sold a hundred dollars worth of merch like holy shit why don't you take the day off and try to repair a billion others don't seem to care better ideas are stuck in the mud the motor's running on trucker's blood don't let them tell you the future's electric because gasoline's not measured in metrics They weren't the only people shocked at the whole ordeal, though. Chris and the mistreaters stood there, mouths agape, watching the White Stripes and the crowd going wild. And we were like, oh, oh, my God. I, I remember them playing before us and thinking, I can't believe we have to follow that. That was pretty incredible. And I know it sounds super cliche to say that, like, especially it, it being one of their earlier shows especially like out of town or it was the first time I've seen them, but it was a thing where watching them, you could tell like they had something they re- they really did. And from that, from that show, we were like, we're, we're never ever going to follow them ever again. <laughs> that was the first inkling of maybe this is more appealing than, than we understand. So comparatively the pavement shows, were playing the White Stripes playing out of town to crowds that had no idea who they were and generally kind of like, oh, okay. Like, wasn't ravenous applause, but they weren't getting booed either. It was kind of just accepted. Follow that up like a month later, playing Milwaukee to a town they've never been to, to people they'd never met and a crowd that was singing along and everyone owned the records. Like being at the merch table and having people say, oh yeah, I already have that, to me was kind of mind-blowing. So here we are with 1999 coming to an end. Jack's pared down his commitments to focus on the White Stripes. Meg has a newfound confidence on stage. The city of Detroit has embraced the band. And there's a small but dedicated audience waiting out in the world. You know, playing music didn't in any way feel like it was something you could do for a living the kind of music we played or from where we were from. You've heard plenty from Ben Blackwell so far, but that's the other Ben from Third Man Records, Ben Swank. You'll hear more from him in future seasons, but I think he sums up where things stood for the White Stripes at the end of 99 pretty well. 100% that would be the ultimate goal, would be just barely doing well enough at it that you didn't have to go to a day job, you know? And... That, to me, was just like this unattainable, insane thing. Um, And (laughs) it seemed like they might do that. In other words, maybe there was a future for the band within reason. But you know, as many big breaks as they had in 1999, unbeknownst to the White Stripes, the biggest break yet was just a few weeks away. I thought anything that's got two slide guitars in it has to be pretty darn good. And it is, actually. But you're going to have to wait until next season to find out what that's about. Because that's all we've got for season one of Striped, the story of the White Stripes. But hey, just in case you're jonesing for more, we will have some bonus episodes in a few weeks for fans who want to know things like uh, how Jack got his iconic airline guitar, 
or what Wayne Kramer of the MC5 did to keep up with the punk revolution and and uh, why Dead Leaves in the Dirty Ground didn't end up on the first White Stripes record. So keep an eye out for that. I want to say a special thanks to Ben Blackwell, Ben Swank, and the rest of the Third Man crew. We get production support from Kojin Tashiro and Mark Charles, and Lone Wolf Gang provided additional scoring throughout Season 1. I also want to thank everybody who was interviewed for Season 1, and I want to thank you for hanging out with me for the last few hours. The biggest thanks of all, though, goes to the White Stripes themselves, because without them, none of this would be possible. I'm your host and producer, Sean Cannon. I'll see you next time. Yeah, the White Stripes were, like I said, at the time, that kind of music uh, wasn't really, you know, no one really cared about it. It was kind of just a few bands here and there doing kind of what they were doing. And and they just, they had the, um, they had the mystery, they had the look, but they also had the songs. That's kind of what it is at the end of the day, right? Um, the songs and then and, you know and they just kept every record they did after that was just got kept getting better and better and they have four houses and i have one <laughs>